Today's episode is brought to you by Crusader, Agent of the Vatican. An epic, action-packed graphic novel that is now available from Diamond Comics Distributors. Ask for it at your local comic book shop with order code JUL141266. It's a 144-page book that features art by the legendary Paul Gulesi and story by creator Omar Morales. Crusader is available in print and digital for $19.99. For more information, visit forcemedia.com. For more information, visit theforcemedia.com. Again, it's an original graphic novel by independent creator Omar Morales with cover art by the legendary Paul Gulesi. Uh, it's 144 pages available in print and digital formats at Comixology and Comics Fix. For more information, visit theforcemedia.com and The Crusader on Twitter. Now entering Nerdist.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel. My name is Ben Blacker. I'm the creator and moderator of the Nerdist Writers Panel. I'm also a writer for television, having written on such shows as Supernatural, Super Ninjas, and I'm currently on DreamWorks Puss in Boots. Um, I'm also the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, a stage show in the style of old-time radio that is monthly at Largo at the Coronet in Los Angeles, uh, and tours all over the place, including an upcoming show in New York, in October, for all kinds of information about the Thrilling Adventure Hour, visit thrillingadventurehour.com. Today's episode was recorded at San Diego Comic-Con at the Nerdist Space. Uh, we had a lot of fun with Thomas Lennon, who of course co-created Reno 911, co-wrote with his writing partner uh, Robert Ben Garant the uh, Night at the Museum movies, uh, as well as a lot of other movies, highly successful movies. Uh, he's an executive producer on At Midnight, uh, and he and his writing partner also wrote a terrific book called uh, Writing Movies for Fun and Profit, and it is pretty much the only book you need to learn about writing movies in the Hollywood system, so check that out. Our other guest is Neil Baer, who has been in the industry for many years. Uh, he started out as a doctor and then became a uh, writer on ER, working his way up through the ranks and eventually running the show. Uh, he also ran Law & Order SVU, and he's currently the showrunner of Under the Dome. Both Neil and Tom had a lot of great things to say about the process and business of writing, and uh, I think you guys will really enjoy their conversation and a lot of the insights that they have. If you came out to see us at San Diego, I cannot thank you enough. We had a lot of fun, and uh, I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. If you do, as ever, please leave a review on iTunes. Thanks. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blacker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. Welcome to the best venue in all of San Diego. This is... That's um, my man. Did any of you guys standing over here actually show up for the Nerdist Writers Panel? Welcome. Well, those are your friends. Those are Neil's three. friends. Um, we're just going to get right into it. Hey, by the way, flash mob, I just want to also mention there is a flash mob in the house. And occasionally, if I, ever, if I rip off my shirt and I scream flash mob, just start flash mobbing, okay? <laughs> don't hesitate. Don't, it's not a fucking drill. It means go. I rip off my shirt. I yell flash mob. Please start flash mobbing. Now we begin the writer's panel. Can any of us yell flash mob? Well, that could be confusing, Ben, don't you think? Could be. 
and rip off your shirt. <laughs> okay, you got to rip. You know, the signal's only official if one of us rips off our shirt and screams flash mob. And then, please, gentlemen at the, at the board, you start the dubstep and... <laughs> And we start flash mobbing. Now then, to the writing panel. Thank you, Tom. Uh, Tom Lennon and Neil Bear are here, you guys. Give them a round of applause. We'll drop it in later. That's perfect. Good to see you. <laughs> Good to see you, sir. Uh, thank you guys for being here. Um, let's, I want to I start by asking you this, because we are at San Diego Comic-Con. And um, as you guys are uh, writers, executive producers, oftentimes directors. What are your responsibilities for representing your product at a Comic Con, they can be very strong. Uh, in, in fact, uh, Ben Garant and I wrote a book called uh, "Writing Movies for Fun and Profit," and there's an entire chapter on uh, selling your movie and promoting your movie because it's a super important thing. Unless you're making art house films, if you're making art projects, which is amazing, I love that, terrific. I can't wait to see those. My favorite movie I have literally ever seen in my entire life was the Grand Budapest Hotel, but. Unfortunately, I don't get to work in that world. <laughs> but fortunately, the... you get to work in the other world. Exactly. And fortunately, it pays the, the bills. other world. And, you know, there, it is significant when you, especially if you've uh, uh, written some things and you've succeeded and you have a, bit, a little bit of a brand, you will be expected to promote your work. And, by the way, it's very tricky. And there's a lot of mistakes you can make. So it's, it's, it's I hate to say that it's good to practice, but... Absolutely, and that's kind of what I wanted to talk about here to begin with. I mean, Neil, you've worked on... ER was never at Comic-Con. <laughs> it should have been. Is his mic on? on? Check, check. Let me see that one one sec. Check, 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 check. Hey, Neil's mic is dead. Can we get... A, is it possible? My shirt is so close to coming up off as I scream... As I scream dubstep flash mob as loud as I can. Check, bass, bass. You know what, Neil? I'm going to hand you this one. I guess we'll be sharing mics, right? Oh, it's on now. All right. Oh, leave it to a... There's a a switch, you guys. Leave it to a fucking nerd to figure it out. (laughs) What did you do? Semi-professional journalist. I turned it on. Way to go, nerd. (laughs) Very good. Kick sand. I really like being on a panel facing an outdoor garage. Right. It's nice. What you, what you don't know is you can have any of those cars when you leave. The, original, the question was uh, ER. Yes. ER. And Why is it not to... at Comic-Con? So ER was never at Comic-Con. Law & Order was never at Comic-Con. It should have been. So you're here with Under the Dome. Why is that here? I, I why is that here? Like, the, the, this is a new flavor of story for you. It's a genre show. Mm-hmm. And so anything that genre, even anything that has a little yes. taste of genre is here. Even shows that don't have a taste of genre and think they have a taste of genre here. <laughs> sure. So, you know, we're more, we're more um, I think we have more reason to be here because mm-hmm. we're sci-fi genre. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. but, but this, I mean, have you been to Comic-Con in the past? Last year when... Went under the dome. With under the dome. So how do you, as a creator and as a producer of this show, communicate to the Comic-Con, communicate with the Comic-Con audience? You know, again, like you haven't been doing this kind of audience for 25 years. You've had a very different audience, a much bigger audience, because it was the heyday of television. Right, right. Well, we're, um, I think one thing we're doing is we're experimenting. So we're, we're doing a lot of transmedial fictive work this year 
I'm that, sorry. I does don't that know sound what, like I don't really know what fucked that means. up? And, and it was no really sense? weird because I literally have no idea. I thought I had a stroke the <laughs> second you said both <laughs> well, of those words. Well, that's my new book, Transmedial Fictive Approaches in Television. What, what does that mean? Well, that means that we just make up a lot of cool stuff that goes with the show, but you can have a, a cool experience uh, if you're really into the show by watching and going on to Twitter and going online to houndsofdiana.com. And this is going to be on a podcast, right? So it'll be like... No, no, after. Yeah, exactly. You're not talking just to these 12 people. Good, good. Because it's like, they all know about it. So like, what the hell? It's like, it doesn't matter. But um, no, we're doing this whole approach where we do vlogs. And if you're a fan of the show, then you can go on our online and you can learn more things that I think are pretty cool that deepen your experience. But you don't have to do it. But if you're a nerd, it really speaks to you to do it. Is this something, and, and Tom, I'll throw this to you because you're working on At Midnight. Is this something that we have to do as TV creators now? Make this other experience? Well, uh, if you want to work in the, in, uh, the stuff that people watch, yeah, I'm afraid yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you may not have to. You, there, there are certain arenas like, you know, there's a lot of arenas that you could just do what I would call art films of TV. But if you're, if you're working in mainstream TV... And it doesn't involve... People watch TV in a super different way. Are you aware that, like, when the Bever- Beverly Hillbillies was on TV, something like 50 million people watched every episode of the Beverly Hillbillies because it was on. Yeah. A- and the options Which were... That's why we're so stupid. Yeah. Because <laughs> we watched it as kids. <laughs> we all ruined we had nothing else to watch. Hillbillies. We didn't have Homeland to watch. Although I have a theory that Beverly Hillbillies is actually based on Faulkner's novel, The Sound and the Fury. <laughs> But I can go into that later. Well, especially Ellie Mae. Dude over there, I'm going to talk to you for hours about this. I think it's true. Uh, but if you're uh, right now, you're in a very competitive arena, which is the question's always you're competing with everyone's screen time. And everyone's screen time, instead of being from like the supper time till, till Hawaii 5 is every waking second yeah. is people's screen time. So, yes, I, I'm afraid if. If you're, if you're working in the business of it, it will become an issue. What, well, it's like, what they should else? be watching yeah. our shows right now and not standing Thanks. around because they can DVR it. But it's, it's, what, what Tom says is true. Our show has a huge lift with plus three and plus seven. So we had 14 million viewers the first week. But that was with a, a lift of over four million right. viewers watching. And we get about over three million, 3.6 million in the first three days. So people are watching other shows or they're doing other stuff and they're just watching so differently. Because when, when I did ER, we had 40 million viewers. Yeah. And you're just never going to see that again. And that was a powerful experience. And now it's a much more fractured experience, but we can still reach people. And that's why we're doing the, the, the Hounds of Diana work, because right. we really want to particularly reach the folks who come to Comic-Con because they're the ones who will go on and then they'll tell their friends and then it'll viral out. So, Have you guys found in you know, working on shows in the past five or so years that the networks are paying more attention to those plus three, plus seven numbers? Oh, positively. What about oh, social media? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. By the way, they've, they've actually, it's either starting or it has started, but they, they do absolutely account uh, for like Twitter stuff and things like this that. It is a completely different arena. And also, uh, f- for example, I was on an, an NBC primetime sitcom last year at 9 p.m. on Thursday nights that was doing a 0.7 or a 0.6. Just 
just for fun. <laughs> when Reno 911 was on the air, it would do a 1.6. No kidding. So we were doing, in prime time on NBC, half of a cable number from a decade ago. <laughs> But, it's, just, uh, it's just different. Like, but then you, you read every day also that, like, well, NBC is getting all below 1.0 and everybody's right. upset about it. But there seems to be, like, when Reno was doing 1.2, 1.6, yeah. that was also the expectation. Like, that was a hit for a comedy and, central, and, but it was also the expectation for a cable things network. Things are different. It's like basically someone took the idea of TV, and you know when a dandelion's ready to go, <laughs> they just went, and yeah. that kind of happened. But, you know, and then you say that, and yet, you know, the ultimately, really, really good stuff always finds its way through, yeah. is, is the other event. That's true. Yes, Whether it lasts is the question, but it, it yes. does find its way through. It, it almost always does. Yeah. And I, I think the networks are changing their mindset about having to have people watch... I mean, they would prefer that people watch Monday night at 10, but they will accept that people watch the next three days. That's good a lot and then they'll accept a little less that they'll watch the next seven days but then yeah. as we'll see I think you know we're at a disadvantage we're on Monday nights if, if, I, if we were on Thursday nights then our plus three would be higher because that's when people really watch stuff so I think we're doing pretty well to be on Monday and still have almost four million people watching on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday but it's just the water cooler world is really kind of focused on reality TV now because people don't DVR reality TV. You got to watch it, you got to know about it, you got to talk about it, you got to tweet about it, and then it's gone. Whereas drama kind of keeps building, and so I think that's going to that's be our saving grace for, 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 for us, which is people can binge watch it, they can savor it. They, you know, we're doing 13 episodes, they can watch all 13 at one time, and Amazon, we are on Amazon Prime, so Amazon can keep track of those numbers. Neil's so it's looking at all those different ways. Of quick watching. spoiler alert, a lot of fake TV shows have ended with, turns out they were all in a snow globe. Yes. How do you so do that? And some good them. movies, too. How do you do that when actually they were all in a snow globe? <laughs> well, they were in a snow globe inside a snow globe. Aha! That's how. So there's like, a, it was in a snow globe. I am uh, giving it away. But inside the snow globe, <laughs> it, you have to break the snow globe, which Junior does this of course. Year. And inside the snow globe, there's a snow globe. It's a Mobius. Now, there may be another snow globe in the snow globe because Probably. in the dome, there was, another a, season. There was yeah. a mini dome last year yeah. in the dome. And so I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but there may be a snow globe in the snow globe. And then at the very last moment, Bob Newhart wakes up with Brenda Vaccaro. Yes, because Suzanne Plachette that was a joke died. For that because guy. Suzanne Plachette died, and Brenda right. sounds like her. Oh, that's what I meant. But it's okay because Sorry. no, that's a they suitable sound replacement. They're sound alikes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, I want to get back to this idea of uh, selling your show and being a salesman. This is something that comes up on these panels quite a bit, um, especially in regards to pitching a show. Mm. Uh, you know, pitching is not something that comes easily to many writers. Uh, it is in many ways the opposite of what a writer is. Uh, Tom, you have the advantage of being an actor as well as a writer. Can you tell us about some pitching experiences? Well, this, I mean, uh, to me, especially in television somewhat, certainly it's very helpful. In movies, it's literally everything that there is is how good is your pitch. And we've in the book that we wrote we recommend even if you never intend to act or perform or, or do anything take a class at the at the improv olympic or the ucb or the second city take a couple of classes that get you uh more confident in pitching yeah. uh 
because that's, it's, that's what it is. It's right? basically I mean, everything. Most times in, in movies, most of the work that Ben and I do, we come in and they say, "Wow, there was this amazing pitch that we heard. It was so great. The script came in. It was horrible. We fired them. Now you're standing here. Can you please fix it?" That's what happens quite a bit. Um, but if you can, obviously, writing is. A, a different thing. It's a very solitary thing. My, my writing partner and I never even write in the same room ever. Yeah. Never comes up. Would would never come up. We can't do it. It leads only to people murdering each other. Uh, also, we, it's not efficient. No. When I hear about writing teams no. that sit in a room together, but but if you saw us practice our pitches, you would think, wow, those guys are like an old timey like <laughs> puppet troupe because we will walk for hours yeah. practicing every moment of the thing we're going to pitch. And how long? How long do those pitches usually go for you? I've never. For a we've feature? never sold a pitch that was longer than about eighteen minutes, ever. Maybe you can do it. Maybe you can. Most people's attention spans are about what you think they are. They're not that long, and you will lose them. So, we te- we we tend to pitch very quickly and then have a bunch of great responses for questions, if they have them. Uh, Neil, tell us about your pitching so we, experiences. We try to pitch pretty quickly, too, and have just a great story that you could tell someone quickly, you know, with a good be- beginning, middle, and end. But, you know, kind of the secret is they know before you go in what your pitch is going to be about. And That's true. They kind of already buy it before, and you kind of know when they're going to buy it. So, so, so why you just do don't want to fuck it up. Well, you just like want to do a good job. You don't want to make them not buy it because you just made it suck. But they kind of know like this has happened to me the last several years where I've gone in and they bought it. And they bought it in the room, <laughs> but I kind of knew they were going to buy it. Right. And, so and they because, knew they were going to buy because, it. Because, you know, you talk to the head of, of development and they talk to the people at the network and they're really interested right. and you've kind of tossed some actors' names around. And so it's yours to lose. But I think... That's I'll tell not. you a better story is when they pass in the room, which I've had a bunch of times. <laughs> Whoa. Tell we us pitching, about when uh, that's happened. My writing partner and I were pitching an Adam Sandler movie that we had pitched to Adam Sandler's people, uh, and he loved it. It was about a sort of a down-and-out, like a limo driver in Vegas who used to be sort of like a, a, a high roller in the casinos, and now he ends up having this shitty afternoon where he has to babysit this like mobster's children with his, in his, driving around in his limo. And Adam Sandler was attached. Attached. We pitched it to his managers like, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. I love this so much. Can't wait. Adam's in. All set. Great. (laughs) We go to Sony, which is where he has his deal. And we start pitching to my friend Doug Belgrad, who is the head of production. So excited. Loves it. And he's like, great. And Adam Sandler's attached, right? Great. Awesome. Great. Pitch, pitch. Going great. Going great. Couldn't. Oh, my gosh. We're crushing this. You know, sometimes you feel like you're doing something just like, wow, this is like a slam dunk contest. During the middle of the pitch, Doug, the president of Sony, gets a phone call. He has to step out and take it for a second. Turns out it's Adam Sandler on the phone in the other room while we're pitching an Adam Sandler movie in this room. Doug Belgrad says, oh, I'm just hearing this, uh, this pitch you're attached to, the, the limo driver thing. It sounds amazing. He's like, what? Oh, no. Wait, what? <laughs> It's like, you know, the thing where you're a limo driver in Vegas with the terrible kids? It's like, oh, yeah, I don't know about that. Oh, my God. That's a good story. Subsequently, we're still pitching in the other room. Right. He comes back in. He's now been told by the star of the movie that he's never going to do this movie. <laughs> and he comes back in, and we now, 
this is one of those moments, we have like eight minutes left to go. And we don't know that we've just been told by Adam Sandler he will never make this film. So we just keep going, and then we finish, and he's like, funny story, you guys. Remember when I stepped out of the room for like 90 seconds? That was the guy you're pitching in this movie saying how much he fucking hates this. So that happens, too. But karma's that was awesome. probably should have done your movie. Do you say, thanks, how about this other movie? Nah. <laughs> well, that's the, the other secret. The true secret to writing in TV and movies is walk it off. Yeah? Yeah. Terrible shit's going to happen that makes you feel really bad. Walk it off. Right. Well, there are all kinds of reasons yeah. that this thing happens, and it's yeah. very seldom personal. Yeah. dust yourself off. Yeah. I wrote all of the Night at the Museum movies because I wrote a film called Taxi with Queen Latifah and Jimmy Fallon. Think about that Hold for a second. Hold your applause. That's fucking crazy. But I got... We had made Taxi. Yeah. We were either going to be driven out to a cornfield and murdered by Fox, or they said, you have to write a children's book adaptation for us, and we picked Nine in the Museum. That's so the best thing in my life happened from the worst thing in my life. Well, I feel like movies are, are a kind of a different animal as well, where the writer isn't often as blamed as much as he might be in television. No, no, no. You know, the writer's blamed a lot in movies. You have obviously not looked up my IMDb credits. <laughs> but you continue to make movies. Walk it off. <laughs> That's fair. Be nice. Walk um, it off. Keep w- giving them new pages. I have a couple of questions I, I want to ask each of you specifically. Uh, Neil, you have a background as a doctor. I've never gotten the opportunity to talk about writing-based maladies with anyone. Writing? Writing-based maladies. Um, carpal tunnel, things like that. Tell, tell, first of all, tell us how you went from uh, getting your medical degree to writing on television. Well, I was a fourth-year medical student um, when, I, when John Wells, uh, who produced ER, gave me the script that Michael Crichton wrote in 1969. And it was outdated. So I said, it's outdated. But, I, but it was about my life. So I gave John notes, and he hired me, and I worked on it for seven years. And so every time Noah got peed on or puked on, that was because I got peed on or puked on. And um, one time, George Clooney came up to me, and he said, because um, he played a pediatrician, and I'm a pediatrician, he said, Neil, it was the first year, he said, he had the sides. He said, ah, Doug Ross wouldn't say this. And I said, really, George, how do you know? And he said, well, I'm Doug Ross here. And he said, I'm Doug Ross. And I said, really? Well, I'm Doug Ross here and here, not here. And um, George went, hey, that's right. So I really learned early on that it's a truly collaborative process in TV with the actors and the writers. And that, you know, I'm Olivia Benson. You know, I'm the product of rape and all the stuff. Mariska did not make it up. Uh, Maloney did not make it up. I made it up. But, you know, I want the fantasy to be that it looks like it's really happening and she's really saying those things and they really happen to her but you know the, that's just a fantasy obviously but, but we, we're always like traversing that line so I was always drawing from the best shows I did on um, ER were based on ethical dilemmas you know I had a kid who wanted to be allowed to die and that became a big show for Clooney where he didn't know what to do and things like that so I was always like plumbing my life and the crazy things, the, you know, getting peed on and puked on and having a great physical actor like Noah Wiley is always good for a laugh and having him slip and fall after that, it's even better. So that, I never slipped and fell, but I 
But I had everything else happen to me. ER seems like a, a sort of um, outlier of an example, but I'm always curious about, and, and this is for both of you guys, working on a show or a film or something that you didn't necessarily create and bringing yourself to it. How do you, how do you get invested in it and how do you put yourself in someone else's show? Carefully. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a tricky... I did that once. Um, well, I did it once on a show and it was really difficult because I came in, the network, it's kind of, I guess, like movies. The network said, we don't like the pilot, fix it. So it's like, okay. So what I did to... Which almost quote, always is what happens. <laughs> so what I did to fix it was not what made the original writer very happy and that was not a pleasant experience. On Under the Dome, it was different because Stephen King gave us his blessing and said, take the book, do what you want. Um, I don't want it to be a slavish... Um, you know, copy of what the book is. And that's why we had Stephen do the first episode of this season to kind of lay the groundwork for, for, for this year. And that's been a really wonderful um, experience that I never really thought could happen because he's so um, collaborative. And also he lives in Maine. And he doesn't like to come, come to Los Angeles. So it's like, yeah, you guys do what you want. I don't want to come down there. Do you feel like, though, that your personality or the things that interest you or that you care about are in under the dome? Are you able to inject those things? Completely. I mean, I feel like it's all of my, um, all the things that I like worry about and and uh, obsess over, are definitely on the show. And all of my sort what of fantasies too. What are they? Oh, uh, you know the 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 ecological uh, terrible uh, calamities that are happening. We can do without like banging people over the head. Um, my um, obsession with monarch butterflies. That's been through though yeah and it was like it got to the point this year that they're like they're, I, we did research like all like like uh, we looked it up and and one of our one of our writers was here and he was like looking it up and I said like look up like do they ever eat blood and they do like who knew that butterflies <laughs> ate blood so it's like oh that's cool we'll have Angie's body covered in butterflies so that's all like your your like dark obsessions come out and you like it's great to have like the internet in your room now because you can just like look up all kinds of crazy shit and go oh god we could have butterflies on her body and they're eating her blood because that's where they get their their iron so no, that's a, that's a great story it also just puts you on three different FBI watch lists <laughs> that that was you're like the only part of me that's in the show is me endlessly thinking about do butterflies drink blood yeah uh, Tom, I have sort of a similar question for you. Yes. You know, you're a, a, an excellent comedy writer. You're also a terrific comedy actor. And you're often called upon to act in something you haven't written. Mm. Mm-hmm. Do you draw a line for yourself? What's the, what's the emotional investment? How do you stop from saying, eh, how about this line or how about this act? I try to, unless it's been invited, do the best with what ex- has, is, has been written word for word. In general, I try to do that. Our show, yeah. In general, I try to do the very best that I can with what was written down. Oh my god! But then once in a while, a director will surprise you and say, "Do a completely different version of that, and do three different versions of that." And the last director that did that was Michael Bay. In Transformers, without any warning, Michael Bay let me do like three or four or five unscripted versions of the scene. You know, with three 3D cameras circling around me, it's, it was amazing. But it's not always invited, and it's not always great. I mean, the secret of a lot of Reno 911 episodes that people don't know, they were perfectly improvised, beginning to end, except for the scripts that we wrote for them. <laughs> so, 
Well, the, I want to talk the, about... I mean, we never wrote dialogue. Yeah. Every word out of everybody's mouth was exactly what they thought of at that moment. But there was never a scene, never a moment, never a, Nothing yeah. ever happened that wasn't thought about at length in advance. I actually yeah. would like... I'd like to talk about the process for Reno, because it's a really interesting one mm-hmm. um, as far as creating episodes and creating characters. Because uh, you, you guys would have people pitch their own characters. We did, right? frequently. That's really neat. Uh, there's a lot of characters, sort of like uh, Nick Kroll played a lot of like uh, the Chupacabra... Uh, Nick Swartzen, I don't know if he owns that character or if he just is that character, (laughs) but there's some combination therein. Uh, No, people would uh, come in with stuff, and then we would usually try to take it and say, well, what if we try to, you know, what if Terry's running for office or something like that? But then when it came time, I mean, for the more scripted episodes, would you guys basically come up with beat sheets? Exactly. Um, Scripts for Reno 911 are every scene is about a paragraph. Just a little paragraph. And the, really, the only really significant thing is that we always knew how things would end. Mm-hmm. And then once in a while, if you've done that, you're allowed to go nuts and improvise and go crazy and do whatever you want. But it really is... Going completely batshit off the rails is so much easier when you have a plan. <laughs> well, and it seems like it leaves you to do what's kind of the most important job of a producer, which is hire the best people to yeah, do exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Neil, how do you like to run a room? It depends on the show. So for ER was a, a room uh, was a room show. SVU everybody worked alone, and I would just kind of travel to each room and look at the boards because it was a procedural. Under the Dome is definitely a, a room show because we have you know nine leads. And How big is your room on the show? Nine writers. Okay. Yeah. So it's um, very collaborative. In fact, we we did something different th- uh, this year that we didn't even do last year, which is we write the outlines together because we found that was really successful. So, and we I'd never done that. We never did that on ER. We would just like do some story beats. But this year, we really kind of like did the stories, and then we worked together very closely. And we have just a great group. They all have different strengths and and you know different interests and and really are respectful of one another. So we would just really pound out each the teaser and acts one through four and do the outlines and then they'd, they'd write them up and then, and then individual writers would write their episodes. Neil, but that just, seemed to work well. Just for fun, crazy question to people that want to write network TV. What are the hours like for a writer on your show? What are the working hours like, just out of curiosity? Ten to six. We don't. No. We, we don't do that. We don't do that all night shift. This is the new generation wow. of showrunners. We do not do that. Yeah. We used ep- to do that on ER, but we do not. I did a couple episodes of Friends, and the writers were allowed to go home and take a shower. We don't do that. And then they were expected to be right back. We don't. Do, only our assistants. They, they they're there from eight to eight. Everyone knows that comedy wow. benefits from sleep deprivation. Apparently, well, drama does not. CIA's number one form of torture, by the way. I mean, I, I really one do. Thing. Also, when they CBS want to you, they just keep you awake. We, I, we really do. I mean, we used to, like, edit, like, at 10 at night. Maybe it's because I'm older. I just don't have the, the stamina to do that. Well, it's we like, used to do a shit ton of cocaine, too, but it's a different era. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what it is. But it's just not working that way anymore. Absolutely. Uh, do any of you down here have questions for these gentlemen? Swear to God, I'm going to rip off my shirt and flash mob the shit out of this in a minute, so watch that's out. That's if you don't have a question. Uh, there's one person excited for that, so good. <laughs> Do you, do you guys have questions? I have more I can do, but I'd like to see if any of you who actually came to this have any. No? You guys are fine? They've told you everything? All right. What are you guys working on now? You're, where are you on Under the Dome? We finished on Friday, shooting it. So we have four episodes left to post, 
and then I'm developing uh, pilots right now because we don't start shooting again until March. And you're are you under a deal somewhere at CBS? Yeah. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit the about best how work? I've worked there too now, so <laughs> that's why I call it the best. The very network. best. The very um, best. That's where I work. Can you tell us about how that process goes when you are either looking for material or you have material to pitch? So I have some. Um, there's someone who runs my company, and she's constantly reading new writers and hearing pitches and kind of winnowing it down to really interesting ideas that she thinks I'll respond to. And we're, you know, it's a year-long process because you can pitch now to cable all the time. And so we're going out tomorrow to pitch, uh, a, a, you know, a show with one of our writers from from Under the Dome. And so I like to work with the people I work with too. So I've I've had really great luck working. You know, some of the people I've worked with. You know, for uh, on on SVU, I worked with some people for eleven years. You know, and I've, there's one person on our show I've worked with for, you know, five years on under on on SVU, and then Gifted Man and Under the Dome. So, uh, you know, and then some people have been launched and they're showrunners and they're doing their own shows, which is great. But, but trying to then I have a, a, an independent film I've been working on for like I don't know ten years, some, something like that. Here's the thing about independent films: they're really an amazing way to win awards and lose a shit ton of money. <laughs> As long as it's not your own. I lost... This is my question. (laughs) On on the movie Hell Baby that I made two years ago, uh, somehow, just from taking the cast out to dinner in New Orleans three nights a week, I lost something like (laughs) $18,000. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I've never gotten it back. I mean, I had wonderful times with people like Rob Corddry and Keegan-Michael Key, but... Yeah. I did... I wanted to ask you about Hell Baby. Uh, This feels like a movie that uh, you and Garant must have had gestating for some time and were waiting till you could actually make it yourselves and make yeah, it how much. you wanted to make it. Uh, can you tell us about the process of the writing process it and putting it together? It was eerily uncomplicated. It was written over the course of like a couple of weeks. No one gave us notes, as you can tell, because we go eat sandwiches for like... 25 minutes of the film is watching people eat enormous sandwiches. There's egregiously superfluous nudity with Ricky Lindholm in a scene that is in no way sexual. There's just all kinds of weird things. And we were like, ah, wow, we finally did it. This is exactly what we meant. (laughs) The movie never basically came out at all. And I lost $18,000 in restaurant bills. But best two months of my life. Yeah, you got to make the movie you wanted to make. You got to create this thing. Every time I see it, I'm like, oh, it's exactly right. I mean, what's... what's And the world was like... Well, but by the way, that happens, and exactly. you know what you do? Walk it off. Exactly. I mean, it also feels like, you know, as much as you guys have made these big Hollywood family films, this is an art film. This is a small it film. It was as close to an art film as we get. Yeah. Which is people eating sandwiches and Ricky Lindholm's vagina. Did it? Yeah. Oh. Did you, did you guys know that in making it, even in writing it, that this is going to be a smaller thing? Oh, no, no, for sure, for sure. I mean, that movie cost $2 million. It was shot basically all within one 10-block radius of New Orleans in two buildings with some of our favorite people. And it was great. It was really like a socialist experience because, like, the star of the movie made as much as... made much less than, like, the gaffers. And, like, I mean, it was one of these... It was really, yeah. I mean, it feels like... It kind of feels like how Reno felt, which is, like... Let's bring our friends in and make a thing. By what you mean, we didn't work on it very hard. <laughs> it's not what I mean. Point taken. <laughs> I get it. We didn't. 
not what I mean. If you guys have not seen Hell Baby, is it streaming somewhere? You can stream it everywhere. In fact, I'll tell you a short story about Welcome to the Future, now that you're in the future. So we put out, Hell Baby was put out on demand. Mm-hmm. A movie we made that um, I put a lot of my life into for a long time. It was streaming legally, but also, just for fun, somebody uh, posted it on YouTube, a perfect high-definition copy of it with Arabic subtitles, which you could just didn't have to look at the subtitles. But in one day on YouTube, it got 68,000 views, which is the equivalent of a million dollars of on-demand business. <laughs> so, welcome to the future. Yeah. It don't, kinda, don't bother everyone. Sometimes it sucks. <laughs> Like, oh, wow, we put that movie on demand, and everybody demanded the shit out of it on YouTube, which is a completely free arena. So, there you go. Uh, but it is, I, I hope people will watch it. I mean, for me, I'm it was so worth it. proud of it. It's weird. Uh, for Keegan Michael yeah. Key alone, who kills me in that movie. Why he doesn't have an Independent Spirit Award for that movie, I don't know. <laughs> uh, let's wrap up by asking what you guys are watching on television these days. Do you watch television? Do you have time? What is getting you excited? What has your room been talking about? What have you and your family been talking about? Well, the room talks about Orange is the New Black. They talk about Walking, well, Walking Dead. They talk about Game of Thrones. They talk about... They don't talk about broadcast television. No. <laughs> Even though that's what we do. Um, so they're talking about what I think everybody else is talking about. Um, of course, I watch... Route 66, and I look at old TV shows to kind of get inspiration for stories. Really, I mean, I do. Um, That's my favorite, because it's, like, so crazy. Like, they're driving in this, like, Corvette (laughs) all over the United States, and it's so cool. The car's so cool. And it's like, how did they production-wise do that? How could they go to, like, Pittsburgh, and then the next week they were in in, in uh, Miami. It's like amazing. Could, it's, it's, we couldn't do it because of union costs and production costs or anything like that. So I like to watch like really obscure old shows and get inspired by them. Well, I've been thinking about that a lot lately uh, because they're also available now. Um, and like, for me, there's no better sitcom than the Dick Van Dyke show. Oh, I love it. But, but Dick Van Dyke never did what... You, Friends sort of started doing, which was serializing. Right. You know what? What inspiration can you take from these older shows? Well, but Dick Van Dyke had. There was serialization in the sense that yeah. Buddy, wife, you would see her. And I was at an event recently, and I watched Dick Van Dyke watch himself on the screen with Mary Tyler Moore dancing, and it was amazing. He had just like this huge smile on his face, and it just like it was just this wonderful moment where you could tell how much he loved doing it. But uh, it's really, I think it's really great to go back and look at these shows because they're so character-driven. Even, you know, and there, there, for a long time there wasn't serialization. When I was doing SVU, it was like for, for, for Boaten to do that because nobody would watch it. Now, because we have 13 episodes or maybe we'll even do fewer, we can really go back to serializing, which is really cool. So I love doing that on our show as well because it demands a lot from the audience but they don't have to commit a long period of time. And so, so I'm trying to watch old stuff that's really It's amazing how different it is. Old TV shows used to be 26 minutes yeah. long. Or like yeah. 50. Yeah, exactly. And now it's like, now, now we do like... Either 42 and 42 a half. 42 minutes, and then yeah. we're two minutes under. Yeah. You know, and it's like... No, and they're happy when you're two minutes under. Oh, yeah. I've had, I've had, I did a, a show on ABC briefly when they first could figure out how to do this. Where they would speed up your performance on occasion. And they do. They'll speed it up a little bit just to get another sort of 30 seconds out of stuff. Yeah. It's ridiculous. 
Yeah. yeah, things kind of like slowly progress on shows, but now that's happening a lot more in cable too. But I like, and I watch Twin Peaks and Twilight Zone because I think that those are the two shows that most, inf- I, I say that our show is kind of an amalgamation of Twilight Zone and Twin Peaks. Because I like when like in the first episode, Melanie is walking down the hallway and Angie, Britt Robertson, yells at her and she looks like kind of like a scared deer and runs away and it's like, God, that could have been on Twin Peaks. So it's like, you know, it's like, well, and if it could have been on Twin Peaks, then I feel good about our show. So, uh, Tom, what are you watching these days? What are you talking about with your well, rooms, your family? I'm watching all the classics, so I should say something else. I mean, obviously, Portlandia, I watch Key and Peele, um, you know, the, your Game of Thrones-y stuff while watching. So instead of that, I'll, I'll, I'll reference a show that no one's watching, but that you can get, which is if you haven't um, seen Steve Coogan in a show called Saxondale. Just get it, and just then send me an email later saying, thanks, Tom, that was an amazing reference. What a cool show I didn't know about. So it's, you can watch, watch all the stuff that everyone loves, but also just for fun, go, go, watch, uh, go see Saxondale. Well, and, and watch any of those Steve Coogan shows, oh, really. So great. I mean, he's unbelievable. And he's here. Uh, please give a round of applause to Tom Lennon and Neil Bear. Thank you guys Bye, for Tom. being here. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. Now leaving Nerdist.com.